1: Today on Something You Should Know, people don't like unsolicited advice. So I have some advice on giving unsolicited advice that works much better. Then, what if you could craft a life that made you luckier, where things just go your way?
0: Very often, people who are the luckiest are actually the people who are the most optimistic and who are the most positive, because they can take an event and they can see the bright side of it. They can see the positive side of it.
1: Also, a list of things you should not buy at the supermarket that will save you some real money. And we all tend to tell ourselves stories, negative stories, about why things happen or don't happen.
2: And yet... From the research I did, you know, a good 90% plus of the time these stories that we tell ourselves aren't true. Um, If a good part of the time I'm making myself miserable with these stories, then I've got to do my part individually to change this to make my life better.
1: All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. I want to start the podcast today with a piece of advice about giving people advice, which they probably won't listen to anyway. It is our desire to help people, and part of helping people is to offer them advice. Trouble is that people don't usually take it. You know this because people probably try to tell you how to eat or drink or vote or dress, and you, you don't listen to them either. So why doesn't offering unsolicited advice work? Well, research indicates that whenever someone tells us what to do and how to do it, we respond with a defensive defiance because we want to maximize our personal freedom and our own decision-making. It's just human nature. So if unsolicited advice doesn't work, what does work? Well, research on observational learning suggests that while people will resist unsolicited advice and instruction, they will follow the behaviors of others, especially when there appears to be good and reinforcing outcomes from those behaviors. So instead of telling people what to do, you should model the behavior yourself and then be quiet. Now, the problem with this is I've just told you what to do. (laughs) (laughs) So, telling you this completely contradicts everything I just told you, and you're probably not going to listen to me anyway. And that is something you should know. Does it ever seem to you that some people, other people, have all the luck, that they just navigate through life winning more than others, winning more than you? Well, what if you could be one of those people who everyone else thinks is so lucky? Well, there does seem to be a way, according to Janice Kaplan. She's a writer and editor. She's the former editor-in-chief of Parade Magazine, and she has a new book out called How Luck Happens, using the science of luck to transform work, love, and life. Hey, Janice, welcome.
0: Thanks. It's great to be with you.
1: So I want to uh, clarify what what you mean by luck, because I think what you don't mean by luck, and what other people sometimes do mean by luck is, You don't mean that if I knew what you knew or if I read your book, I'd be hitting the lottery every week because that's not what the kind of luck you're talking about.
0: Right. Lotter- lotteries are about random chance, and uh, by the way, most lottery winners end up miserable anyway, so that's not, that's not a very lucky thing. Um, the fun of writing this book was really turning the definition of luck a little bit on its head um, and saying that luck isn't just random chance. I looked at luck as having three strands. One of them is chance, but put that to the side. The other two are talent and hard work. And by talent, I don't mean that you have to be Meryl Streep, though it can't hurt, um, um, but talent means recognizing opportunities, seeing possibilities, taking some chances. And hard work is hard work. And if you focus on those two, there's a good chance that you're going to be able to create a life that actually looks lucky. It looks like luck to other people, but you know when you look at it that you've actually put all of those pieces in place to make it happen.
1: Well, I I, I can relate to that. I mean, people have said to me how lucky I am, but I've worked hard for what I've had but I do know people who seemingly and maybe it's that's the key word here seemingly have been the the um, recipient of amazing luck through circumstance that and didn't work that hard they just happened to fall into it.
0: You know things uh, r- things can happen uh, all all the time, of course, but I think what we're really looking at is how do you create a lucky life? How do you have not just a single incident that looks lucky, but that whole lucky life? And if somebody has fallen into something that's positive, um, and they can continue to make it positive, and they can continue to use that talent and hard work to grow the luck. then then they have created something. Very often people get what looks to be like a lucky break, looks like they've had a huge advantage, and they don't know what to do with it um, because they're not prepared for it or they don't have the the interest in making it go on. And ultimately that's not a very lucky outcome.
1: Well, and on the other hand, uh, we all probably know people who seem to have had a very unlucky life, that things always seem to go wrong for them
0: an interesting uh, perspective that a lot of people do have. They think of themselves as unlucky and I wonder if they actually are or I wonder if it's how we're perceiving ourselves and our own opportunities. Um, I think very often people who are the luckiest are actually the people who are the most optimistic and who are the most positive because they can take an event and they can see the bright side of it. They can see the positive side of it and then they can move forward from there. And the research actually shows that uh, that people who think of themselves as lucky tend to become more lucky. There was actually a, a very amusing experiment that was done out of uh, the UK by a, a researcher named Richard Wiseman who's also written a lot about luck. And he gave people um, who called themselves either lucky or unlucky in newspaper and asked them to count how many photographs were in the newspaper. And on about page three, he had written, stop counting right now, uh, tell the researcher you saw this and you'll win a hundred pounds and can go home, you know, a hundred dollars and can go home. Well, the people who thought of themselves as lucky tended to see that because they were open to things, they were had a, a better a, ability to look widely around them. The people who thought of themselves as unlucky didn't even see that notice in the paper and they just kept counting the photographs. And I, I just find that story really lovely because it does show that luck is sometimes right in front of us um, and we truly literally don't take it because we're just not noticing or we're just too scared or we're not paying enough attention.
1: Well, and I would imagine that you would agree that optimism plays a, a part in this you seldom see somebody who's one of those real negative person complaining about how lucky they are and, and we,
0: <laughs> exactly right and and um, the uh, the psychologist Marty Seligman uh, who's sort of the father of positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, he told us that the number one trait he would look for if he were looking to take a lucky person along with him to the moon, the number one trait he would look for would be optimism because those are the people who can recognize opportunities, who can who can turn things around and make things m- make things happen.
1: So how do I create a lucky life?
0: I think the first thing is knowing. What you want, uh, knowing what you're aiming for, and that can change over the course of a life. But but you have to be focused on something. You have to be aiming towards something because then you're able to let other people know what it is that you want, and those people can sometimes help you find something specific that way. If you're just kind of vaguely thinking, ah, I just want my life to be better, it's probably not going to be. But if but if you have those specific goals, those specific things that you want. Um, there's a good chance you can make them happen. Persistence also matters, too. You've got to have a lot of at-bats. You've know, you got to give yourself as many chances as you possibly can. Um, if you're even if you're not terribly good at something, if you're only going to, you know, if you're a, a, a one in a hundred hitter, if you take a hundred at bats, you're going to get that hit. So sometimes it really is just hanging in there and, um, and, and focusing on where you want to be.
1: But sometimes it isn't just hanging in there because you're, you've got a bad idea or you're barking up the wrong tree and persistence might be your enemy
0: yeah that 's a really great point, and you know because there are always those stories that we all find so inspiring that you know John Grisham, who was sold I think you know two hundred and seventy five million books um, worldwide, was turned down by, by twenty eight publishers before his first book got published, and the same with dr. Seuss and you know Harry Potter was turned down by, I think, 12 publishers before, before that got published. So those are all the stories of hanging in, but you're absolutely right. Um, sometimes you have to realize that it's not going to happen and uh, that you're not John Grisham. And I think one way to judge that is kind of to see how close you get to something. So if you want to be an actor and you're just getting turned down at every audition, maybe it's time to go to law school. But if you want to be an actor and you're down to the last two for one audition after another, then it really is just giving yourself that extra chance because then you have the evidence that you're good and you just need that, that little bit of, uh, of opportunity to, to change. So you're absolutely right. You need to be honest with yourself and you need to see how you're doing and, and keep judging along the way.
1: And what about the people who surround you? How important are they to how lucky you are?
0: Really important. Um, I think that luck is very often other people. And we tend to think that it's those people who are closest to us, our family members, mom and dad, uh, our our closest friends who are going to make luck for us. And actually, it's not. Um, Sociologists talk about the strength of weak ties, and I I love that phrase. Um, Weak ties are actually the people in that second circle, slightly beyond those who you are so close to, the people who you know a bit more casually, who you see from time to time, And those people are more likely to have a different circle than you do, to know different people than you do, to know of different opportunities than you do. And so strengthening those weak ties, keeping that circle of friends larger is very often a way to lead to luck. Um, And by the way, sometimes moving away from mom and dad uh, is is something that's going to help make luck. We tend to think of Americans as always on the move and always going, and it's just not true. The vast, vast percentage of people still live something like 20 miles away from their parents. Um, And uh, I have nothing against parents. I am one. Um, But you have to realize that sometimes you have to look for opportunities elsewhere.
1: We're talking about ways to be luckier in your life, and I'm speaking with Janice Kaplan. Her book is How Luck Happens, Using the Science of Luck to Transform Work, Love, and Life
2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Janice, you're talking about living close to your parents, living close to home, and the influence that that has on your life it also seems that being around those people that you grew up with, your family and your friends that you grew up with, these are people that are invested in you staying who you are that, and not becoming somebody else and not growing too much. Yes?
0: I think that's absolutely right, and that is why uh, having a different perspective and uh, being able to have that wider circle um, can, can make a big difference
1: but it does seem that a lot of the lucky events that happen you know is a result of the person that you're sitting next to on the plane or someone you meet somewhere at a party that that there is that that random meeting that does seem to drive a lot of lucky circumstances
0: it, a dangerous attitude to have that everything is unplanned, and so I just have to wait for that. I I, I spoke to one um, uh, entrepreneur who has a very successful company right now, and he said to me, my entire life has been based on luck a random event. I happened to be seated next to an investor at a dinner uh, who liked my idea some years ago, put money into it, and, and, and that was it. Can you imagine my whole life was based on just where I happened to be seated? Well, that's a great story, isn't it? That's a really nice story to tell, except if you take it back, you realize that the more went into it. Um, That he did have that wide circle of people that he had been been building and cultivating. He had this great idea for a company that he had been working on for months and months and and trying to develop. Uh, Somebody who knew about him in that circle of weaker ties had invited him to that dinner because he wanted him to meet the investor. When he sat down next to the investor, he knew exactly what to say to him. He had a great pitch to give to him. So it looks like random change chance, but I can tell you that if I had been the one who was randomly seated next to that investor, I would not now have a $100 million company. So I think it's very much that combination of what we've put into place, what we have prepared for, and then being able to take advantage of what look like random events.
1: Yeah, you have to be prepared for when those events happen, but you can't plan on those events. They, They happen when they happen with whoever they happen with. Like the guy, it happened to, I can think of several cases in my life, my father's life, where it was the guy sitting next to you who knew a guy that had this thing and it all worked out. And But it wouldn't, as you say, it wouldn't have all worked out if all those other things weren't in place as well. But that was a factor. It was a random event that kind of triggered it, but then all those other things were in place as well.
0: Right and and I think there's sometimes a good chance that if those that if that random event hadn't happened it might have been a different one sure. um, right, and right. you might have ended up in a slightly different place than you are now but if you knew that you were looking to make something happen you would have made it happen.
1: Do you think is it your experience that people who you would consider lucky and who consider themselves lucky are always lucky or do they have bad luck streaks or or what?
0: Yeah, I I think, again, bad luck is sometimes how you look at it. And when you're in the midst of a situation, it can feel like bad luck. Um, When you are able to kind of pull back from that momentary situation and look at all of the paths that you might be able to take, uh, you can start to feel not quite as stuck. Um, I love the story of the author Lee Child, who I worked with back when I was uh, editor of Parade. And uh, Lee, of course, is the author of the internationally best-selling Jack Reacher thrillers that were made into the movie starring Tom Cruise, and Lee only started writing those books after he was fired from his job as a television uh, director, which he had held for about a dozen years, and he told me he had expected to stay in that job forever, and he was furious when he got fired. Management had changed, and he had a wife, and he had a kid, and he had a mortgage, and a car, and what was he supposed to do? Um, Well, he took some of that anger into doing into trying to think of it as an opportunity and doing something he had always wanted, which was to write. Now, when you've been fired from your job, you don't necessarily know that you're going to end up being an internationally best-selling author. Um, but if you can try to take what seems to be bad luck and try to see it as an opportunity, try to say, okay, nothing I can do about this except think about what the next step is, then maybe you can turn it into something positive.
1: Well, but that, that does take that Internal optimism to be able to to see that, to to not see the doom and gloom, but to see that this is an opportunity. It's, it's easy to say you that's a good thing to do. It's pretty hard to do it in the moment when you're feeling as if you you know your world's coming to an end.
0: Absolutely. And um, I'm not suggesting that it's easy, but I I do think that having that resilience, having that strength, having that positive outlook really can be what makes you start to look lucky uh, when you look back or when other people look over at you.
1: What else about luck when you looked at this? What else about luck surprised you?
0: I think one of the things I was most surprised by was um, the idea that um, uh, you need to, what we call zig when others zag, that sometimes the most successful people go in unexpected directions. So, you know, I'm a, I'm pretty straight arrow. I, I usually think that you're supposed to follow the straight path and, 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 and go straight ahead and uh, keep doing what, you know, keep plodding along and you're going to be successful. But it turns out that very often, taking a different direction than others are, can lead to success. And I'll I'll, I'll tell you one story from that. Um, Back when I was a TV producer, I I worked with um, uh, a guy at Fox named Mike Darnell. And, And this was some years ago, and Mike was really at the very forefront of starting reality television. And Mike told me recently that he had very consciously chosen that direction, because in television, everybody is always copying each other. And he thought that the only way he was going to stand out was to take a lane that nobody else was in. So he was doing shows at Fox called, you know, Joe Millionaire and Temptation Island and all of those early reality shows that were just completely scoffed at. But he stuck with it. And um, then uh, when a a guy from the UK came in to to pitch a show, he was a reality show. He was one of the only people willing to take a meeting with him, bought his show, put it on the air. You may have heard of it. It's called American Idol. And... um, um, it, of course, became one of the biggest shows in television history. And Mike was very ardent that he had that success because he went into a different lane, because he zigged when others zagged, because he was willing to, to be a little bit different. And, um, again, uh, it's not always going to work. And there are times when you definitely don't want to be <laughs> too different. Um, but uh, it is worth thinking about and, and worth sometimes giving yourself that opportunity. Yeah.
1: There is this image that some people, some people who are seemingly lucky, you know, they, they put all their eggs in one basket. They, they, they just, they closed their eyes and rolled the dice and, and wow, look what happened. And that, that, that kind of reckless attitude is part of luck.
0: Right. And I think it's a very dangerous myth that we have developed around entrepreneurs that, um, you know, they've thrown everything uh, into what they do and they have no backup plan. And and um, I actually looked a little bit more in depth at a couple of companies, including Warby Parker and some of the other uh, big recent startups uh, looked uh, Looked back at Kate Spade, and and those myths really don't hold up. Um, they really all did have some caution behind them. Uh, they sure were throwing themselves into these businesses, working really hard for them. But they also knew that the odds weren't hundred percent, and they had something that they were willing to to turn to uh, if it didn't work out. And um, I think over and over again, that's that's an important lesson to have. That we all know that we're going to diversify if we're if we're buying stocks, well, we probably want to diversify in our lives a little bit also.
1: Well, it does seem, from what you're saying, that, that in many ways, luck is kind of an illusion. That luck, when we think of luck, it isn't, you know, magic. It's it's a, the result of, of hard work and knowing what you're doing and, and persevering and all of that. Janice Kaplan has been my guest. She's the former editor-in-chief of Parade Magazine, and her new book is called How Luck Happens, using the science of luck to transform work, love, and life. Thanks, Janice.
0: Great to talk to you. Okay, Thank you, you too. So much. Bye-bye. It's a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Until it was pointed out to me uh, several years ago, I guess, I never really realized that I and you, we are constantly telling ourselves stories. Here's a perfect example, you send an important email to someone that requires an immediate response and you don't get one, at least not right away. So what do you do? You immediately start telling yourself why. You start filling in the blanks and creating reasons why that other person hasn't written you back. And it's almost always negative and it's almost never the real reason the person didn't write you back. We all tend to do this over and over again. And for one thing, it can cause a lot of undue stress, and for another thing, it can get you in trouble, especially if you start to actually believe the story you made up, and you act on that. So what's going on here? Scott Gorto is a therapist and author of a book called The Stories We Tell Ourselves. Stop jumping to conclusions, free yourself from anxiety, transform your relationships. Hey, Scott, so why do we do this? Why, when we don't know what's really going on, do we make up these stories out of thin air?
2: You know, I think our brain, you know, from the very beginning of time, those first really couple years of life is, is you know, fighting for our own survival. Um, you know, we're looking for those first couple of years of life, at least, to you know genuinely connect with another person and to also feel like we're safe. And, you know, I don't think that need for safety Leaves us, um, and so certainly, in relationships when we don 't have all the answers, we have a tendency to to fill in the blank as a way of feeling more safe or more in control or more in a position of um, comfort
1: yeah well, we don 't like a story without an ending, so we make up our own i guess that 's right, but it 's always a negative ending it 's always a negative fill in the blank it 's never a uh, you know, he's not calling me because he's busy calling the florist to send me flowers. It's uh, he, He's not calling me because yeah. he's never going to call me.
2: It has a tendency to do that. You know, I've certainly worked with people over the years who, you know, have more of a propensity towards more of the positive narrative. But for the most part, most of us, including myself, lean more towards that negative narrative. You know, we have the ability to work towards a more of a positive narrative to, it's, it's almost like it's a skill, really. It's a, it's a skill that you can develop and get better at and begin to change the story, because most of the stories that we tell ourselves are really more fictional anyway.
1: Well, if telling yourself a negative narrative is self-protective, what's the harm?
2: That's a fantastic question. So when you're saying, what is the harm, um... You know, I don't think there's harm in in telling yourself more of a positive narrative. Certainly, if your spouse has been distant for a few days and you wonder what's going on, I mean, it could be a number of things. And, you know, certainly what we want to to shoot for is trying to get more information and going to that person and talking with them at the right time. But, you know, in that in-between space, we do have the ability to lean into more of a positive narrative. And I, I think that's a better way to go.
1: But positive may be just as wrong as the negative. Uh, I would think that that truth would be better.
2: I completely agree. However, so if I'm going through my day, and that story I just shared about the the husband and wife, and I'm going through my day, and I don't have all the information, I have two different options. Either A, well, three, really. Either A, I let myself tell, tell myself a negative narrative. That could be based on some past situations in that coupleship or that relationship or I could go down a more positive path that says, you know what, let me give him the benefit of the doubt here. Let me give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't know all the information. I'm going to try to tell myself a little more of a positive narrative, not a made-up narrative, not a fictional narrative in terms of just creating anything, but more of a pressing pause on the negativity and suspending it and saying, look, I'm not going to go down a negative path, but I'm going to go down a, a little bit more of a positive path, which is I don't know all the information, and I've got to hold it with more of an open hand, and I certainly want to seek the truth which means I want to sit down with them at the right time to talk with them about this and what I'm, you know, what, what's going on in my head and what I'm telling myself. But part of the goal is not just, and that's a, a good uh, nuance there that you're bringing up, it's it's not just changing to a positive narrative. It is about suspending the negative narrative at the same time.
1: Which is incredibly hard to do because if it was easy to do, everybody would do it. So how do you do it? How do you suspend what seems to be a natural inclination to fill in those blanks with a negative story.
2: The very first thing is becoming aware. You've got to become aware that you are doing this to yourself. And that, Hear the language, we're doing that to ourselves. We don't know the story, and our brain is naturally going to go towards a default of telling ourselves more of a, you know, a negative narrative, typically. And if we're not even aware we're doing it, then how can we stop? So I think the first step is awareness of learning, okay, I am, I'm actually doing this. But I do think there has to be a level of awareness that you begin with. Once you start with the, once you get to the awareness piece, then you could put press pause on it. And at that point, there's other things that you can do to help yourself calm it and move to a different place. Like? Well, for example, one of the greatest gifts that we have is our breath, our breathing. And, uh, you know, I will work with people specifically on different breathing techniques to calm down their heart and and... and, 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 and Trying to get their their you know oxygen back into their lungs and in their, their brain and to you know more breathing techniques. I'll also work with them on um, getting more present in the moment. Meaning, you know, if there's really heightened anxiety, if I'm if I'm if I'm telling myself a story, that story that I mentioned earlier about the husband and wife, if I'm in that narrative and I've got a narrative in my head about my wife and the distance between us for a couple of days, you know, and, and my brain has a tendency to go more future or what else is going on, which is outside of my body. I'm not in the present. I'm somewhere else. So the breathing can bring you back to the present. And the other thing that can bring you back to the present is learning to get in, get connected to your senses where you're, you know, if you're sitting in a room, I'll try to put both feet on the ground and I'll, more mindfulness techniques, you know, where you're looking around the room and you're trying to get, you know, connected to something, a painting, color, texture, sight, hearing sounds, you know, that sort of thing to try to get yourself more in the present. Those can be a couple of small ways, but there's a number of other ways that you know, one can do to help themselves you know, take steps towards calming their own anxiety, sometimes writing it down and journaling it, seeing it. Um, I like asking the question, you know, what do I know to be true about this? Is this true or some variation of that? And that's another additional point of stopping. But the whole point of these kind of exercises is just to question the thoughts. It's it's not I like to think it that every thought that comes into our brain, you know, we, we don't need to just let it sit there and, and ruminate. We've we've got to learn to challenge our thoughts. And it's a skill that we learn to develop. We've got to learn to challenge it and influence them. And when if we don't, if we if we just let them be there, they'll take us down all sorts of paths. So, you know, just coming to the awareness and the knowledge that our ability as human beings uh, that we have the ability, rather, to to pause our thoughts, that so we can't control the first thought that comes into our brain each and every moment of every day, but we have the power to change the second.
1: Is there any value in, if you've been ruminating all day about what might be, and it's probably negative, is there any value in sharing that when you finally do sit down and talk? Seems like it probably wouldn't be of much value, but but I want to get your take on that.
2: You know, I really... I don't get asked that question very much, but I will say that I really appreciate that question because I do see value in that. If you're in a, in a business relationship or um, more of an acquaintance-type relationship, that sort of thing, no. I don't see a whole lot of value there. It, it, it really depends on, I guess, the business relationship you have, whether you have a really good long-term you know, open uh, relationship. It's certainly more in a, a committed emotional partnership of some kind. Yeah, I think it would be great. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is I say, hey, you know, go into that person saying, look, you know, especially if there's a lot of openness and, and vulnerability and, you know, between the two parties, if they had that kind of relationship, and certainly that takes a lot of work and time and trust and so on. But, but yeah, going to that person saying, look, you know, over the last few days, this is what I've told myself. And rather than making myself miserable with this because I've been struggling with it, I've tried to put pause on it, but I wanted to, you know, stir up all these feelings of all this insecurity and fear, and, and I realized that I don't even know if it's true. But I wanted to give you a heads up of where I am with this, and is this true? So yeah, I think, you know, if if, if we go with the belief that having an emotionally committed relationship, part of that is, is sharing um, what's going on in your mind and your heart, that would be an example, an opportunity for uh, for that type of communication.
1: Well, it is interesting how, you know, we talk to ourselves all day long, we're telling ourselves stories all day, and, and yep. we don't really stop and, and critique them and say, you know, do I know this to be true? We just accept it as truth, and boy, does it get us in trouble.
2: It does. And what I find very interesting is there's a lot of people out there in my research study that I'm finding who don't even think about this. It's not even a thought in their head. They don't, not, there's not an awareness that they're doing this. They, they recognize it once we start talking about it, but they don't, they're not, there's not a lot of awareness there for, for many folks. Um, but yeah i think the more that you can become aware of this the more you can put pause on press yeah. pause on that on that on that tape
1: well i you know i i am aware of it sometimes i mean when i stop to think oh let's be aware of it but but most of the time i think people are not you know it, it's a very conscious effort to say hey wait wait a minute wait wait look look where my mind <laughs> is taking me um, yeah. and and question it rather than just let your mind take you where it takes you and accept it as reality. And, boy, it, it really does help when you can put the brakes on and say, well, no, wait a minute. I, d- I don't know that to be true. I don't know that that's the reason this person's acting this way or they haven't called me back or wh- wh- where, where, where am I coming up with this? This is just fantasy.
2: Yeah. You and I can talk about this and be thinking about it for the next few minutes, right? But then we're going to go throughout our day and be caught in another story. And then how do you remind yourself to get good at this? And it's a skill that you develop. I mean, I'm, you know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. I'm still getting good at this and getting better at it. It's definitely a skill that you have to hone in. And <laughs> sometimes minute. I'm doing it really well, and sometimes I'm, um, I get stuck.
1: You've been doing it 20 years, and you're still trying? Well, that's discouraging, because if you can't nail it, <laughs> then how the hell am I going to nail it?
2: <laughs> uh well, I'm no, uh, you know, at the same time, I'm a human being. I would say that, you know, if I had to give a, if, if I had to say how I was doing 20 years ago compared to now, if I rated myself on a scale of one to 10, I probably would say that I was, a, you know, a two or a three on awareness of this. And the better I, I, the more awareness I got, the more skilled I got at this, the more training I did with this, I'm probably at a seven or eight, maybe even a nine at times. You know, there's, and so it's certainly something you can improve on, but you know, as human beings, we're, it's development and change is something we do for the rest of our life. You know, um you know so it's it's something you've got to to keep working at, but I would say there's folks that out there who you know they'll they'll you know they'll put a rubber band around their their wrist and they'll you know keep it on there or a bracelet of some kind that that reminds them um, you know to tell themselves a different story or to pause that story
1: you know what's interesting is that when when this happens and then when you go find out what the real story is, and most of the time it isn't what you've been thinking. Uh, we don't use that as evidence for the next time. We we discount it and say, well, yeah, but that was last time. But now this is really what's going on.
2: Yeah, you think you would. Yeah, you I think, think you would. would. You know, yeah, you think you would. You know, we would build on that past experience. If you keep that in the forefront of your mind, that could be helpful, or that could be a reminder. That can that can be one of the conversations that you can have in your head in the moment. Is a okay. I'm getting myself stuck with this. Remember last time it was this. Let's see if that can help in this moment. From the research I did, you know, a good 90% plus. I mean, it's 90, 90% plus uh the, the time these stories that we tell ourselves aren't true uh, that I found in the research study I did. The, 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 the work that I've, you know, there are, there are times certainly that these stories are true, and, and the reality is we don't have any control over what other people's behavior is. and uh, But we do have control. if If there's an element here that we could say, hey, if a good part of the time I'm making myself miserable with these stories and I'm allowing this to happen, that I've got to do my part individually to change this, to make my life better. I can't control what other people do, and if they do something that causes me a lot of pain, I'm going to have to work through that pain and go through the grieving process. I'm going to have to, I, I can't. You know, there's, this is not a recipe for avoiding pain for, from other people's behavior, but it is a recipe for, for turning down your own pain and causing your own self-harm.
1: Well, I think the the simplest advice you gave is the best advice, which is to just be aware that you're doing it, that you're making up these stories, filling in these blanks because you know we don't like a vacuum. we don't we don't like the unknown, so we, we make up our own reality. and and usually it does us absolutely no good. Scott Gorto has been my guest. He is a therapist and author of the book. The Stories We Tell Ourselves, Stop Jumping to Conclusions, Free Yourself from Anxiety, Transform Your Relationships. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Scott. You bet. Well,
2: I enjoyed it and always enjoyed talking with you.
1: If your goal is to save as much money as possible at the grocery store, and <laughs> why wouldn't that be your goal? Because you don't want your goal to be to spend as much money as possible at the grocery store. So if saving money sounds like a good idea to you, there are a few items you should seriously consider not buying at the grocery store. Organic onions and avocados, for example. These two items are naturally pesticide-free. The same goes for most produce with non-edible skin, including banana and garlic. There really isn't any reason to buy organic versions of these, and you will save money if you don't. Swordfish. Because swordfish is scarce, swordfish is expensive, and it also contains unusually high levels of mercury. Buy halibut instead. It's a lot cheaper and cleaner and has fewer calories. Gluten-free baked goods are another rip-off because they cost about three times as much as regular baked goods, and gluten-free goodies don't have any fewer calories or any more nutrients than products with gluten. So unless you've been diagnosed with celiac disease, you're really wasting money on gluten-free products. And finally, Spongebob anything. <laughs> if, and, and I love Spongebob, so I don't mean to pick on him, but the point is that if if you're buying products that have your favorite cartoon characters on the packaging, you're paying more for that product because they have to pay the rights and the marketing fees for using Spongebob or whoever else on those products. And that is something you should know. A reminder that we have great sponsors on this podcast. If what they sell sounds the least bit interesting to you, I hope you will check out their products and services and and buy them. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.